Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So today we're going to talk about some of the assumptions that one makes when one uses a linear regression, because you know what they say about assumptions. Um, I do, but this is a kid-friendly podcast. Well, I'll tell you the one that I like, which is, um, you know what they say about presuming things, is it makes a pre out of Sue and me. So you can infer <laughs> what the assuming one is. You are listening to Linear Digressions. That's a good one. I'm going to have to use know. that sometime. Yeah, totally. I, um, I'm proud. I came up with that one. That's one okay. of those ones that you're supposed to like read in the list of like 96 funny puns that like your uncle sends you on a forward, 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 forward email thread. But, uh, but I, I came up with that one. I'm not the uh, first, I'm sure. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, it's let's talk about, yeah. <laughs> want to talk about machine learning or, well, I guess this is a machine learning. This is statistics. Let's talk about statistics. Stats. Cool. So we talk a lot on this program about linear regression and in particular, ordinary least squares comes up a lot because, well, it's, it's a technique that people know and love because among many nice properties that it has, uh, one of the, the output that you get when you run a linear regression and you're, you make a linear model to describe your data set, that linear model is what we call blue, which is an acronym called the best linear unbiased estimator. So what that says is that basically, well, it's kind of self-descriptive estimator means it's the line that describes the data best means that it minimizes the sum of the squared errors mm-hmm. linear is because it's a linear model. So it takes the, the coefficients and it multiplies them by, uh, the values at any given data point to give you your answer and unbiased means that it it's not guaranteed to get every single data point right because that's sort of impossible but it will get them too low as much as it gets them too high so that's what unbiased means is that it on average it uh kind of goes right down the middle in terms of the mistakes that it makes i have to say i'm having i'm experiencing a little bit of deja vu right now yeah, a lot of this has come up in some of our recent episodes where we've been, it's not for any particular reason, we've just been digging through the guts of uh, ordinary least yeah. squares theory yeah, and, re- Wait, and regression. I need to ask you a question. Mm. Every time you say we use ordinarily squares or ordinarily squares this or that or the other, um, as, a, as a non-statistician, as a person who doesn't work with this every day, that is a really weird name. Like, it, it feels like someone typoed. Why? Use an ordinarily squares regression because, I, I mean... No, it's not ordinarily squares. It's ordinary space least space Ordinary squares. least squares. Oh my god, everything makes so much more sense. ordinary least squares i mean you know because we record and and i've got you on the phone and it's a little hard to hear sometimes ordinary least squares yes and you probably say it so much that it just kind of runs together okay now i thank you 
Thank you. Sure. Anytime. <laughs> I feel so much better uh, now. Ordinary okay, cool. least squares. That also makes more sense. Well, yeah. And so the ordinary, you know, that, I don't know, that, that feels uh, normative in a way that I wouldn't really like judge on. But yeah. least squares is fairly self-explanatory. So squares is because it's based upon that sum of the squared error term. And then least is because you're minimizing it. And I guess ordinary just means there's there's nothing else that's weird or fancy going on. And so, like I said, we really like ordinary least squares for many reasons, but one of them is because it usually kind of gives you a pretty good answer, where a pretty good answer is defined as the best linear unbiased estimator. Mm -hmm. And, but that, the fact that it gives you the, it, that gives you the blue, the, I'm just going to call it the blue because best linear unbiased estimator is such a mouthful. The fact that it gives you the, the blue estimator is rests on a set of assumptions about the data that you're putting into it. And so that's what I wanted to talk about in this episode, because, um, you know, it's something that can be easy to skip over, especially if you've taken, if you've learned about regressions, maybe from more of a machine learning background than from statistics. And these are these, so these are some of the things that you can kind of take for granted if you're not super familiar with it, but that are important to take into account because it's, why it's not exactly why the method works, but it's, it's the stuff that if it's not true, it can start to break. So it's worth going over. Okay. So you're saying if a linear regression seems like a good idea, I should probably make sure that I'm, that I know about these assumptions that the tool assumes that I'm, I'm doing with my data because otherwise I might have a hard time. Yes. Um, and in particular, well, what you should generally be doing is paying attention to the errors that you get when you create your linear regression. But let me get into the let me get into the assumptions. That yeah, we can talk Let's about dive in. as it happens. A lot of them are about the errors. But um, yes, so uh, there's a set of assumptions in the process of researching for this episode. I found several different sources, some of which said there were four, some of which said there were six, some of which said there were six plus one. Somebody said there was seven. It can be a little bit Wait, confusing. Six plus one is seven. Well, it was like six. It was like six and then a bonus one that sort of follows <laughs> okay. from some of the other two. And it can be a little bit oh, confusing because sometimes different sources will phrase the same general idea in different ways. Um, uh -huh. And so I'll at, on LinearDigressions.com, I'll attach some of the sources that I found handy, but just... To summarize, if this is something that you're super familiar with, it might have sounded a little bit different, but hopefully we're all saying the same thing. But anyway, the assumptions. We will go through six of them. So the first one is that you assume that the model is linear in the coefficients. So what that means is that a, a linear regression gives you a linear model back. So you'll take the coefficients and you'll be multiplying them in a linear way by the data that you have. So if that relationship between the coefficients and the data is not a linear one, then you're not going to get a very good estimator back out. Right. That seems like a pretty, um, I mean, I guess a lot of these seem obvious unless you get it wrong, in which case it doesn't seem obvious, but it's in the name linear regression. So basically use it in a linear way. Yeah, so it's going to give you back an answer that assumes that there's a linear relationship. So if you have something yeah. that's not linear, like you have something that's exponential 
or logarithmic, then you know you can still stick the data into the into the regression algorithm. It's just not going to give you a particularly good answer. Then that's why a lot of times when you're running regressions, you'll add extra terms to the regression that are things like logarithmic or exponential transformations of your variables, because those are some of the most common other types of relationships that you can have between oh, uh, the coefficients in the data besides a, a linear one. Yeah, so you can you can actually do those variable transformations and then you're back into OLS territory. But so you, anyway, the wait, point... You're, the, you're basically saying you've got a bunch of points in some space and then you just bend the space if it's exponential or if it's a logarithmic or something, you could just bend the space, bend the graph, convert those points to a different space, run your linear regression, and then convert it back. I mean, bend the space makes it sound much more... I'm thinking, <laughs> like... Metaphysical than what it is. Space-time content. I was watching Star Trek recently. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think... You're not really bending the space-time continuum. You're just taking all of your variables and... <laughs> taking the logarithms of them and then what that's yeah. going to do is it's going to it's going to make all of your variables you know assuming that they're bigger than one basically it's going to make all your variables smaller but it's going to make your yeah. big ones smaller more dramatically than it makes your small ones smaller so it's going to change the shape in a way that makes it if it was linear before it will no longer be linear but if it was exponential before and you do a logarithmic transformation well now it's linear and your ols will pick it up very nicely so you know, these are kind of standard things that that you'll very often do during these uh, during these regressions is is take some of those transformations because then it'll do some of your most common take some of your most common nonlinear problems and make them linear. Hopefully, that's a really neat idea and one I wouldn't have thought of on my own, but it seems so simple now that you say it. Yep, and so then um, it's just a thing to keep in mind. Otherwise, like I said, not going to get a great answer. Second assumption has to do with the residuals or the errors that you get out of your data set once you've fit it. By definition, ordinary least squares will give you the mean of the data, the conditional mean of the data. And it's going to assume that as a corollary of that, the error term, so that's the the thing that's left over, you know, the difference between the predictions that you make and the data itself, that, that error term has a mean of zero. So in other words, that was the, that's the unbiased part, uh, is that in general, you will be getting an answer back that's overestimating as much as it's underestimating. And so this is something that you want to check when you run a linear uh, regression. To some extent, it's sort of guaranteed by the, the OLS process, but you do want to look at your residuals after you have run one of these regressions and you want to check that there isn't anything funky that in general they're falling mm -hmm. above and below zero uh, in a way that doesn't have any huge outliers that are ideally any huge outliers that are pulling them around or anything like that. So it's kind of a sanity check. Yeah, a lot of this is sanity checks on the error terms, especially the third, hmm. the third assumption of OLS is another important one. It's the idea that there's no autocorrelation. Another way to put that is that if you were to take any two data points that 
the error terms between them would not be correlated. So a, a related idea here, although one that's slightly different, is that in general, statistics and ordinary least squares works the best when you have what we call IID data, identically and independently distributed data. So what that means is that all of your data points are independent of each other. There aren't weird relationships between them such that when you see one data point, it changes the likelihood of you seeing a different data point. So, mm, yeah. So the idea is that, you know, if you're sitting there and you're, you're drawing from a distribution, each draw doesn't change the overall distribution that you're just kind of getting these, these independent samples from each other. So like an example of that would be you're dealing cards from a deck of cards. Every time you put down a card, that actually changes the likelihood of getting this number or that number from the deck of cards because you're changing the pool that you're pulling from. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you could take that example. I'm trying to think of another one that might be a little bit closer to like the regression case. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Let's say, as a silly example, let's say the thing that I'm trying to regress is how much I like a given book. And so there are some books that I really like, and there are some books that I really don't like. And so if I read a book that I really hate, then chances are that the next one is going to be something that I, you know, I'm just so glad to be done with that book that I'm just excited to be reading something else. And I'm going to overinflate. <laughs> yeah you know, my rating of the next one. And then if I just finished a book that I really liked, I'm going to be really sad that I'm not reading it anymore. And so I'm going to lowball my rating of the next one. So that's an example of where the ordering in which I read the books could actually have an impact on like the, the data that I see or the data that I collect in a way that makes it no longer identically and independently distributed. There's now this weird relationship between all of my data points. And that's something that's going to introduce patterns in my in the errors that I see patterns in the residuals and OLS is not really designed to do particularly well in those situations okay so the fourth one is probably my favorite because you're gonna love this word um, it is the assumption of no heteroscedasticity <laughs> heteroscedasticity yep you got it heteroscedasticity whoa that's a that's a word. Uh -huh. Is that a real it's, word or was it made yes, up? Is of it course. like jargon? That... No, I didn't. I mean, it's jargony, but I didn't like make up a word for this. <laughs> not, not you, but I mean, like, is this is skedasticity? Is that a thing that exists outside of the uh, relatively new field of machine learning or, or outside of statistics? Oh, I mean, it's certainly older than machine learning. Like this definitely goes back to statistics and probability. I don't know. I mean, it's not a word that I use. It's not a word that I use every day, but if you deal with statistics, you're pretty familiar with the idea of heteroscedasticity. So heteroscedasticity. Really? Okay. Well, that's not yes. me. It's actually not that complicated of an idea though. It's just a, it's just a big word. Oh, and there's so, also homoscedasticity. Um, I I suppose so, Constant although I've never... Homoscedasticity or with some kind of pattern is hetero... Okay, we, we don't even know what we're talking about yet. Uh, well, what you, is heteroscedasticity? You don't know, I know. It sounds, it sounds like you've oh, got Google know. up and running. Yeah, so it's the idea of what's the pattern in the variance of the data that you have. So homoscedasticity, I guess, 
uh, which is a term that I use less often, but that's the idea that all of your data has the same, um, it has the same spread to it throughout all the different parts of the distribution. So to use an example here, let's suppose, let me take an example of something that I bet actually does have some heteroscedasticity. Let's suppose you're running a regression of the price of a watch, okay, as a function of the attributes of the watch, the watch, 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 where, where it's like, like, what kind of does it have? You know, what is the watch band made out of? What's the country of origin? So at the lower end of the watch scale, my guess is that there's probably some, you know, a fair amount of pretty tight clustering around certain price points. And so you might have a lot of watches that are in the like $20 range. You might have, and they're 20, like plus minus five. You might have some watches that are in the, the $50 range and they're 50 plus minus 10. And then as you go out, as they get more expensive, the spread also gets bigger because you're starting to get into, you know, kind of places where the laws of supply and demand are a little bit weird. People are willing to pay a whole bunch of extra money for things that are a little bit different. So by the time you're out for like out in the tail of the distribution, you have a thousand dollar watch or a $10,000 watch. The differences that might make a five or a $10 difference at the lower price point, like maybe it's got a leather band instead of a metal band Mm -hmm. that might be a you know a few dollars difference at the low end but at the high end i don't know maybe it's two hundred dollars for no good reason but just the variance that you see in the prices is much larger in one part of the distribution than it is in another that is heteroscedasticity so it's the idea that the variance is is changing throughout the different parts of the distribution and in general ols will not do particularly well with heteroscedasticity, you want to have a distribution where if you were to plot the residuals, again, as a function of the outcome that you're predicting, you want to see the spread of that distribution be more or less constant across the whole distribution. Cool? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Okay, number five, second to the last one, is that OLS will do quite well when the error terms are normally distributed. I'm not sure if this is strictly speaking one of the fundamental assumptions of OLS, but it's certainly something that's very nice. So we said before a few things about your error terms. We said they should have constant variance. That's the heteroscedasticity one. We should we said they should have they should be centered at zero. The average error should be zero. And in particular, if you can get to a place where they are normally distributed, that's really nice. Because what OLS is finding is the conditional mean of the, the population sample. And if you were listening a few months ago, we had an episode about the central limit theorem and how that's basically a connection between the way that you can sample from a distribution and a guarantee that that, that sample mean is going to take a normal shape or a you know, Gaussian shape if you're a physicist. And so if your errors are normally distributed, that's basically a guarantee that everything is working the way that you think it is. Um, and so, again, I don't think it's it's strictly required. It's not if you don't have this, but you have the other ones, you're probably still in pretty good shape. But if you have if all of your error terms are Gaussians that are 
centered at zero and that have the same standard deviation, then you are in pretty good shape for getting your uh, best linear unbiased estimator out of OLS. And then the last one, I don't know if this is the most important one, but it's it's actually a really important one, is what's called no multicollinearity. Okay, another big word. Another way of saying this. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as bad as heteroscedasticity, but it's, yeah, it's up there. Another way of saying this is that you can't have two variables that are perfect copies of each other or that are differ from each other from by only uh, some linear multiple. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because if they if they mm-hmm. differ by like a factor of two, they may as well be the same. Yes, exactly. And so this is a big problem for sort of two reasons. Number one is conceptual, which is that what you're trying to find is the relationship between these input covariates and the outcome of interest. And so if you have two different input covariates that have literally the exact same information in them, then it's very hard for you to know which one of them is driving any relationship that you mm, see. see. You know, it could be one, it could be the other, it could be both. You could have you could have them actually pulling in opposite directions, but they perfectly offset. It gets very, you know, oh, weird wow. and that, ill-defined. That would get hairy, yeah. And the second reason that this is a big problem is sort of the mathematical representation of the same idea, which is that, uh, you know, there is no well-defined minimum of the sum of squares distribution then, because you can have any kind of admixture of the two of them and they'll give you the same answer. So, you know, what you're trying to find is the single best answer. And when you have a whole bunch of different ways to get the same answer, then that's just fundamentally ambiguous to, uh, to the solvers that are dealing with these problems. And, you know, some of you may have maybe a little bit more familiar with OLS as, um, from a mathematical perspective, you know, one of the other ways that you can do OLS is by inverting a matrix that's got all your data in it. And you can't invert a matrix if it has two columns in it that are exactly the same or two rows in it that are exactly the same. It's like mathematically not possible. Mm. So anyway, the point is that your intuition starts to get fried and the math starts to get fried when you have two columns that are exactly the same. So that can give you a very bad time. That's all. (laughs) That's all. So if, so that's uh, six things I should keep in mind when I'm using uh, linear regression. Number four, I think was the most important because it is the largest word that I've ever heard. I'm sure it's not. I think there's really just one thing that you need to keep in mind. I think look, look these things up every once in a while, just to remind yourself of what they are. Mm. But the gist of it is you should always be plotting your residuals. You should be always plotting the difference between what your model is predicting and what the data is actually saying Mm -hmm. as a function of different variables in the data itself. And if you see anything that looks like there's patterns in those residuals that you're seeing, then that is a sign that you could be in some trouble. So if you, this is a whole, there was a whole laundry list that we went through just now, yeah. and I hope some of these are, you learned something. Um, but at least for me, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have to look them up again just to do a cross check. But I've gotten very used at this point to looking at lots and lots of pictures of the mistakes that my models are making, especially when I'm doing these linear models. So that's that's the thing you should really do is just get used to always looking at your errors mm, and then you'll yeah. get a pretty good intuition for this stuff. Yeah, it seems like most of these 
kind of come from that and whatever intuition that you develop after you do this a little bit. Yep, that's right. So there you have it. The assumptions of OLS. Live long and prosper. I'll, Go forth. LLIP. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. You bet. Uh, and we promise that I don't know what next episode is going to be about yet as we're recording this, but I promise it won't be about no, linear regression. No more regressions <laughs> for a little bit. I didn't say no more. Not next. Not next week. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm going to take a breather from linear regressions. All right, we'll catch you next time. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.